Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. Welcome to Voices in AI. I'm Byron Reese. Today, we're delighted to have as our guest Martin Ford. Martin Ford is a well-known futurist, and he has two incredibly notable books out. The most recent one is called The Rise of the Robots, Technology and the Threat of a Jobless Future. And the second one is The Lights in the Tunnel, Automation, Accelerating Technology and the Economy of the Future. I have read them both cover to cover, and uh, Martin, Martin is second to none in coming up with uh, original ideas and envisioning a kind of future. What is that future that you envision, Martin? Well, I do believe that artificial intelligence and robotics is going to have a dramatic impact on the job market. I'm one of those that believes that this time is different relative to what we've seen in the past, and that therefore um, we probably are going to have to find a way to adapt to that. I mean, I, I do see a future where there certainly is potential for significant unemployment and even if that doesn't develop at a minimum, we're probably going to have underemployment and a continuation of stagnant wages, maybe even declining wages and, and probably soaring inequality. And all of those things are just going to put a, an enormous amount of stress both on society and on the economy. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest issues we need to think about, you know, over the next few decades. So taking a, a big step back, uh, you, you, you said, quote, this time is different. And that's obviously a reference to, to the off-sided argument that we've heard this since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that machines were going to advance too quickly and people weren't going to be able to find new skills. And I think everybody agrees up to now it's been uh, fantastically false. But your argument that this time is different is based on what? What, what exactly is different? Well, that the key is that the machines, in a limited sense, are, are beginning to think. I mean, they're taking on cognitive capability. So what that means is that technology is finally encroaching on that fundamental capability that so far has allowed us to really stay ahead of the march of progress and remain relevant. I mean, you can ask the question, why are there still so many jobs? You know, why don't we have unemployment already? And surely the answer to that is our ability to learn and to adapt. Um, you know, to, to find new things to do. And yet we're now at a point where machines, especially, you know, in the form of machine learning is, is beginning to move into that space. And it's going to, I think, eventually get to what you might think of as a kind of a tipping point or an inflection point where technology begins to outcompete a lot of people in terms of their basic capability to really contribute to the economy. And, and you know, no one is saying that all the jobs are going to disappear and that there's literally going to be no one working. But I think it, it's reasonable to be concerned that a significant fraction of our workforce, um, in particular, those people that are perhaps best equipped to do things that are fundamentally routine and repetitive and predictable, you know, those people are probably going to have a harder and harder time adapting to this and finding a foothold in the economy. But specifically, why do you think that? I mean, like, give me a kind of a case in point, because we've seen, we've seen enormous, we've seen disruptive technologies on par with AI, right? We, like the harnessing of, 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 of artificial power, you know, has to be up there with artificial intelligence. Um, we've seen entire categories of jobs vanish. We've seen technology replace 
any number of people already. And yet unemployment, with the exception of the depression, never never gets out from between four and nine percent in this country. Like why what holds it in that in that stasis and why I still kind of want a more meat on that, why this time is different bone. Because everything well, kind I, of hinges I, on that. Yeah, I mean I think that, that historically we've seen um, primarily technology displacing muscle power. I mean, that, that's been the case up until recently. Now, you, you talked about harnessing power. Obviously, that did displace a lot of people doing manual labor, but people were able to move into more, you know, cognitive, cognitively oriented tasks. Even if it was a manual job, it was one that, that required more brain power. Um, but now machines are, are encroaching on on that as well, clearly. I mean, we see many, many examples of that. I mean, there are algorithms that can do a lot of the things that journalists do in terms of generating news stories. There are algorithms beginning to take on tasks done by lawyers and radiologists and so forth. Um, the, I mean, the most dramatic example perhaps I've seen is, is what DeepMind did with its AlphaGo system, you know, where it was able to build a system that taught itself to play the ancient game of Go and then eventually became superhuman at that and was able to build to uh, to beat the the best players in the world i mean and that's to me i would have looked at that and i'd have said you know that if there's any task out there that is uniquely human and and um ought to be protected from automation you know playing the game of go given the sophistication of that game really should probably be on that list but it's it's fallen to the machines already so um i i do think that when you really look at this focus on cognitive capability on the fact that the machines are beginning to move into that space that, that so far has protected people that um, as we look forward, again, I'm not talking about, you know, next year or three years from now even, but I'm thinking in terms of decades, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what's it going to look like as these technologies continue to accelerate? And it, it, it does seem to me that there's very likely to be a disruption. So if you had been alive in the industrial revolution and you know, somebody said all the farm jobs, they're, they're vanishing because of technology. Um, there's going to be less people employed in the farm industry in the future. And then wouldn't somebody uh, have asked the question, well, what are all those people going to do? Like, all they know really how to do are plant seeds. And it, if you had come up with what, every, all the things they ended up doing were things that by and large didn't exist at that time. So, I mean, isn't it the case that new, whatever the machines can do, humans figure out ways to use those skills to make jobs that are higher in um, productivity than the ones that they're replacing? I mean, yeah, I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. The question, though, is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not questioning that some of those jobs are going to exist. The question is, are there going to be enough of those jobs? And will those jobs be accessible to average people in our population? Now, the example you're giving with agriculture is the classic one that everyone, you know, always cites. And here's what I would say. Yes, you're right. Those jobs did disappear and maybe people didn't anticipate what the new things were going to be. But it turned out that there was the whole rest of the economy out there to absorb those workers. I mean, you know, agricultural machinery, tractors and combines and, and all the rest of it was a specific mechanical technology that had a dramatic impact on one sector of the economy. And then those workers eventually moved to other sectors. And as they moved from sector to sector, first they moved from agriculture to manufacturing. Um, and that was a transition. It wasn't instant. It took some time. 
but basically what they were doing was moving from routine work in the field to fundamentally routine work in factories. And that may have taken some trading or some training and some adaptation, but it was something that basically you know, involved moving from one routine to another routine thing. And then of course there was another transition that came later as, as manufacturing also automated or, or offshore. And now everyone works in the service sector, but still, most people, at least a very large percentage of people, are still doing things that are fundamentally routine and repetitive. So, you know, 100 years ago, you might have been doing routine work in the field. In the 1950s, maybe you were doing routine work in a factory. Now you're scanning barcodes at Walmart, or you're stocking the shelves at Walmart, or you're doing some other relatively routine thing. The point I'm making is that in the future, technology is going to basically consume all of that routine, repetitive, predictable work. And that there still will be things left, yes, but there will be, you know, more creative work or there'll be work that uh, involves perhaps deep interaction with other people and so forth that really are, are going to require a different skill set. So it's not, you, you know, it's not the same kind of transition that we've seen in the past. It's really more of a, I think, a dramatic transition where people, if they want to remain relevant, are going to have to... Um, really have an entirely different set of capabilities. So what I'm saying is that a significant fraction of our workforce is going to have a really hard time adapting to that, even if the jobs are there. If there are sufficient jobs out there, they may not be a good match for you know a lot of people that are doing routine things right now. Um, have you tried to put any sort of, kind of in, in, even in your own head, any kind of model around this, like how much unemployment or at what rate do you think the industry will, the economy will shed jobs or what sort of timing or anything like that? Or is it just, you, you know, know? I, I, I make guesses at it. I mean, of course there are some relatively high profile studies that have been done. And I, I personally believe that you should take those with a grain of salt. The most famous one was the one back done back in 2013 by a couple of guys at Oxford. Right, which which is arguably the most misquoted study on the thing. Exactly, because what they said was that roughly 40, I mean, 47%, which is a remarkably precise number, obviously, um, right. roughly half the jobs in the United States are going to be susceptible, could be automated um, within the next couple of decades. Is that actually, I, 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 I well, thought what it says is that 47% of the things that people do in their jobs is able to be automated, but it has nothing to do with it being 47%. Yeah, this, this particular study, they did look at actual jobs, um, but the, the key point is that they said uh, roughly half of those jobs could be automated. They didn't say they will be automated, and when the press picked that, picked that up, it, it in some cases became, you know, half the jobs are definitely going to go away. Um, there was another later study, which you may be referring to, was done by McKinsey, and that one did look at tasks, not at jobs. And it came up with approximately the same number. They, they, they came up with the idea that about half of the tasks within jobs, you know, would be susceptible to automation, or, or in some cases may already be automated, may all, already be able to be automated in theory. Um, but that was looking at the task level. Now, again, the press kind of looked at that and they took a very optimistic take on it. They said, well, your whole job then can't be automated. Only half of your job can be automated. So your employer is going to leave you there to do higher level stuff. And, you know, in some cases that may happen. But the other alternative, of course, is that if you've got two people doing two jobs and, and half of each of those can be automated, then 
we could well see a consolidation there and maybe that just becomes one job, right? So um, different studies have looked at it in different ways. You know, again, I would take all of these studies with some skepticism because I don't think anyone could really make predictions this precise. But the main takeaway from it, I think, is that you know, the amount of work that is going to be susceptible to automation could be very significant. And, and I, I would say, to my mind, it doesn't make much difference whether it's 20% or 50%. Those are both staggering numbers. Um, they would both have a dramatic impact on society and on the economy. So regardless of what the exact figure is, it's something that we need to think about. Um, in terms of timing, I tend to think in terms of between 10 and 20 years as being the, the, the time frame where this becomes kind of unambiguous, where we've clearly reached a point where we're not going to have this debate anymore, where, where everyone agrees that this is an issue. I, I tend to think 10 to 20 years, but I certainly know people that are involved, for example, in machine learning that, that are much more aggressive than that. And they say, you know, it could be five years. So that is something of, of a guess, but I do think that there are good reasons to be concerned that, that the disruption is coming. And the other thing I, was, I would say is that even if I turn out to be wrong about that and, and it doesn't happen within 10 to 20 years, then it probably is going to happen within 50 years. I mean, it's going to, it, it seems inevitable to me at, at some point. So you talk about not having the debate anymore. And, and I think one of the most intriguing aspects of quote, the debate is that uh, when you talk to to self-identified futurists or when you talk to economists on the effect technology is going to have on jobs, they're almost always remarkably split. So you've got this camp of 50%-ish that says, oh, come on, you know, this is, this, this is ridiculous. There is no finite number of jobs. Anytime a person can pick up something and add value to it, they've just created a job that, that the, we want to get people out of tasks that machines can do because they're capable of doing more things and so forth. So you get that whole camp and then you have the, the side, which it sounds like you're more on, which is no, there's, there's a point at which um, the machines are able to improve faster than people are able to train. And that that's a kind of an escape velocity and that, you know, has, has, has those repercussions. Why do you think, so all of that is a build up to the question, why do you think it's so like these are two very different views of the future that people who think a lot about this have. Why do you think, like what, what assumptions do the two camps have underneath their beliefs that, that are making them so different in your mind? Right, I, I do think you're right. It's just an extraordinary range of opinion. I, I would say it's even broader than that. I mean, you, you're talking about the issue of whether or not jobs will be automated, but, but on the same spectrum you've got, I'm sure you could find famous economists, maybe economists with Nobel Prizes that would tell you, you know, as you say, that this is all kind of a silly issue. It's a repetition of, um, you know, the Luddite fears that we've had basically forever and nothing is different this time. And then at the other end of that spectrum, you've got people not just talking about jobs. You've got Elon Musk and you've got Stephen Hawking saying, you know, it's, it's not even an issue of machines taking our jobs. They're going to just take over. They might threaten us, ex, you know, be an existential threat. They might actually... Um, become super intelligent and um, decide they don't want us around. So that's just an incredible range of opinions on this issue. And it, I guess it points to the fact that it really is just extraordinarily unpredictable in the sense that we really don't know what's going to happen with artificial intelligence. Now, 
my view is that, you know, I do think that, that there is often a kind of a line you can draw between the people that tend to be more skeptical, maybe are more geared toward being economists, and they do tend to put an enormous amount of weight on that historical record and on that fact that so far this has not happened. Um, and, and they give great weight to that. The people that are more on my side of it and see something different happen tend to be people more on the technology side, um, you know, that are involved deeply in machine learning, I mean, um, and, and so forth, and, and really see how this technology is going. And I think that they, they may maybe have a sense that, um, that something dramatic is really gonna happen. I, 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 that's not a clear division, but I think that it's my sense that that it kind of breaks down that way in many cases. Um, but for sure, you know, I, I absolutely have a lot of respect for the people that disagree with me. I mean, this is a very meaningful, important debate with a lot of different perspectives. And I think it's going to be really, really fascinating to see how it plays out. So you, you touched on the existential threat of artificial intelligence. Where do you, uh, let me just start with a couple of questions. Do you believe that an AGI, a general intelligence, is possible? Yes, I, I don't know of any reason that it's not possible. That, Fair enough. That doesn't mean I think it will happen, but I think it's certainly possible. And then if it's possible, everybody, you know, when, when, you, when you line up everybody's prediction on when, they range from five years to 500 years, which is also a telling, uh, a telling thing. Where, where are you in that? When do you think I, you would I, see? You know, given, you know, I'm not a true expert in this area because I'm, I'm obviously not, not doing that research, but based on the people I've talked to that are, are in the field, I, I would put it further out than maybe most people. I, I think of it as being probably 50 years out would be a, a guess at least, and quite possibly more than that. Um, I am open to the possibility that I could be wrong about that and it could be sooner, but I, it's hard for me to imagine it sooner than maybe 25 to 30 years. Um, but again, I, you know, this is just extraordinarily unpredictable. Maybe there is some some project going on right now that we don't know about that that is going to produce something much sooner. But my sense is it's you know pretty far out, measured in terms of decades. And do you believe uh, computers can become conscious? I believe it's possible. I mean, I, what I would say is that the human brain is a biological machine. That's what I believe, and and I see absolutely no reason why the experience of the human mind as it exists within the brain can't be replicated in some other medium, whether it's silicon or quantum computing or, or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't see why consciousness is something that is, is restricted in principle to, to a biological brain. So I assume then it's fair to say you hope you're wrong. Well, I, you know, I don't know about that. I definitely am concerned about, the, the more dystopian outcomes. I mean, I, I don't dismiss those concerns. I think they're real. Um, I'm not, I'm kind of agnostic on that. I don't see um, that it's definitely the case that, that we're gonna have a bad outcome if we do have conscious super intelligent machines, but it's a risk. But I, I also see it as something that's inevitable. I mean, I don't think we can stop it. So uh, probably the best, strategy is to begin thinking about that. And what I would say is that, you know, the, the issue that I'm focused on, which is what's going to happen to the job market, is much more immediate. That's something that is happening within the next 10 to 20 years. This other issue of 
super intelligence and conscious machines is another important issue that's I think a bit further out, but it's also you know a real challenge that we should be thinking about it. And for that reason, I think it's great that people like Elon Musk are making investments there, you know, to, in in think tanks and so forth, and they're beginning to focus on that. Um, I think it would pretty be pretty hard to justify a big government public expenditure on on thinking about this issue at this point in time. So it's great that you know some people are focused on that. And so. I, I'm, I'm sure you get this question I get all the time, which is, um, it's a variant of, I have young children, what should they study today to make sure that they have a relevant, useful job in the future? I, you get that question? Oh, I get that question, yeah, it's probably the most common question I yeah, get. Yeah, me too. What do you say? Um, I, I probably, I, I'm going to bet that I say something very similar to what you say, because it's, I think the answer is almost a cliche. It's that, first and foremost, avoid studying to uh, prepare yourself for a job that is on some level routine and repetitive or predictable. Um, instead, you want to be, for example, doing something creative where you're building something genuinely new, or you want to be doing something that really involves deep interaction with other people that has that human element to it. And, you know, for example, in the business world, it might be building very sophisticated relationships with clients. Um, a great job that I think is going to be relatively safe for the foreseeable future is nursing because it has that human element to it where you're, you're building that relationships with people. And then it's also got tremendous amounts of dexterity and mobility where you're running around uh, doing you know, lots of things. I mean, it, it, that's the other aspect of it is that a lot of jobs that require that kind of dexterity, mobility, flexibility are, are going to be hard to automate in the foreseeable future. Things like electricians and plumbers and so forth um, are going to be relatively safe, I think. Uh, but of course, those aren't necessarily jobs that people going to universities want to take. Um, so it's, it's, you know, prepare for something that incorporates um, those aspects, creativity and the human element and, and maybe some something beyond sitting in front of a computer, right? Because that in itself is is going to be fairly susceptible to this. So let's do a scenario here. Let's say you're, you're right. And uh, in 15 years time to take kind of your midpoint, we have uh, enough job loss that is say commiserate with the great depression. So uh, that would be 22%. That happens quickly. 22% of people uh, are, are unemployed with, with few prospects. Tell me what you think happens in that world. Like what happens with, are, you know, are there riots? What does the government do? Is there a basic income? Like what will happen? Well, that's going to be our choice. But the negative, let, let's talk about the dystopian scenario first. Yes, I think there would absolutely be social unrest. I mean, you're talking about people that in their lifetimes have experienced a middle class lifestyle that are suddenly, I mean, I mean everything just kind of disappears, right? So that's certainly on the social side, they're going to be enormous stress. And I would argue that we're seeing the leading edge of that already. I mean, you, you know, you ask yourself, why is Donald Trump in the Oval Office? Well, it's because in part, at least, these, you know, blue collar people, perhaps focused especially in the industrial Midwest, have this strong sense that they've been left behind. And they may point to globalization or immigration as the reason for that. But in fact, technology has probably been the most important force in, in causing those people to no longer have access to the good solid jobs that, that they once had. So we see that already that could get, you know, orders of magnitude worse. 
Um, so that's on the social side and the political side. Now, the other thing that's happening is economic. I mean, we have a market economy. And that means that the whole economy relies on consumers that have got the purchasing power to go out and buy the stuff we're producing, right? You, you, businesses need customers in order to thrive. This is true of, of virtually you know, every, every business of any, any size. I mean, you need customers. Um, and in fact, if you really look at the industries that drive our economy, they're almost invariably mass market industries, whether it's cars or smartphones or financial services. I mean, these are all industries that rely on tens, hundreds of millions of viable customers out there. So if people start losing their jobs and also their confidence, if they start worrying about the fact that they're going to lose their jobs in the future, then they will start spending less. And that means we're going to have an economic problem, right? We're going to have um, potentially a deflationary scenario where there's simply not enough demand out there to drive the economy. There's also the potential for a financial crisis, obviously. I mean, think back to 2008, what happened? I mean, how did that start? It started with the subprime crisis where a lot of people did not have sufficient income to pay their, their mortgages. I mean, so obviously you can imagine a scenario in the future where um, lots of people can't pay their mortgages or their student loans or their credit cards or, or whatever, and that has real implications for the financial sector. So this is... I mean, no one should think that this is just about, well, it's going to be some people that are less educated than I am, and they're unlucky, too bad, but I'm going to be okay. No, I don't think so. This is something that drags everyone into a major, major problem, both socially, politically, and economically. The Depression, though, it didn't have, it wasn't notable for um, social unrest like that. There weren't really... Well, that, you know, there, there may not have been riots, but, you know, there was a genuine, you know, in, in terms of the politics, there was a genuine fear out there that both democracy and capitalism were threatened. I mean, one of the most famous quotes comes from um, Joe Kennedy, right, who was the, you know, the patriarch, the first Kennedy mm. who made his money on Wall Street. And he famously said during that time that he would gladly give up half of everything that he had if he could be certain did he get to keep the other half? Um, because so there was genuine fear that there was going to be a revolution, maybe a communist revolution, something on that order in the United States. So it would be wrong to say that, that there was not, um, you know, this, this revolutionary fear. Out right. There. So you said, uh, you, you, you said, let's start with the dystopian outcome. And, and right, was... right. So, so that's the bad outcome. Now, if we do something about this, I think we can have a much more optimistic outcome. And, and the way to do that is going to be to find a way to decouple incomes from traditional forms of work. In other words, we're going to have to find a way to make sure that people that aren't working can't find a regular job, have nonetheless got an income. And there are two reasons to do that. The first reason is obviously that people have got to survive economically. And that addresses, you know, the social upheaval issue to some extent, at least. And the second issue is that people got to have money to spend if they're going to have be able to drive the economy. So I personally think that some kind of a guaranteed minimum income or a universal basic income is probably going to be the way to go there. Um, now, I mean, there are lots of criticisms of that. People will say, you know, that's paying people to be alive. Um, people will point out that you just give money to people, that's not going to solve the problem because people aren't going to have any dignity. They're not going to have any sense of fulfillment or 
anything to occupy their time. They're just going to take drugs or, you know, do or be in a virtual reality environment or, or do lots of things. And, and those are all legitimate concerns. And, and because partly of those concerns, my view is that a basic income is not just this plug and play panacea that, okay, a basic income, that's it. I think it's a starting point. I think it's the foundation that we can build on. And one thing that I've talked a lot about in my writing is the idea that we could build explicit incentives into a basic income. Um, just to, to give an example, imagine that you are a struggling high school student. So you're in some, you know, difficult environment in high school. You're, you're really at risk of dropping out of school. Now, suppose you know that no matter what, you're going to get the same basic income as, as everyone else. So to me, that creates a very powerful, um, perverse incentive for you to just drop out of school. And I, to me, that seems silly. We shouldn't do that. Uh, so why not instead structure things a bit differently? Let's say if you graduate from high school, then you'll get a somewhat higher basic income than someone that just drops out. Uh, and we could take that idea of incentives and maybe extend it to other areas. You know, maybe if you go and work in the community, do things to help others, you'll get a little bit higher basic income. Or if you do things that are positive for the environment, you could extend it in many ways to incorporate incentives. And as you do that, then you take at least a few steps toward also solving that problem of where do we find meaning and fulfillment and dignity in, in this world where uh, maybe there just is less need for traditional work, you know, um, but that definitely is a problem that we need to solve. And so I think we need to think creatively about that. You know, how can we take a basic income and build it into something that uh, is going to help us really solve some of these problems. And at the same time, as we do that, maybe we also take steps toward making a basic income more politically and socially acceptable and feasible, because obviously right now it's not, politically feasible. Uh, so I think it's really important to think, you know, in those terms, what can we really do to expand on this idea? But if you, if you figure that out, then you solve this problem, right? People then have an income and then they have money to spend and they can pay their debts and all the rest of it. And um, I think then it becomes much more positive. I mean, you know, if you think of the economy, think of not the real world economy, but imagine it's a simulation and you're doing this simulation of the whole market economy and suddenly you, you tweak the simulation so that jobs begin to disappear. What could you do? Well, I mean, you could make a, a small fix to it so that you replace jobs with some other mechanism in this simulation and then you could just keep the whole thing going. You continue to have thriving capitalism, right? A thriving market economy. I think when you think of it in those terms as kind of a programmer tweaking a simulation, it's not so hard to, to make it work. Um, obviously, in the real world, given politics and everything, it's going to be a lot harder. But, I, you know, my view is that it, it is a solvable problem. At South by Southwest, uh, um, Mark Cuban said the first trillionaires or the first trillion dollar companies will be AI companies, that it has the capability of creating um, that kind of, of unmeasurable wealth. Would you agree with that? Yeah, as long as we solve this problem. Again, every, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're doing AI or any other business, you've got, I mean, that, that money is coming from somewhere, okay? When you talk about evaluate, evaluate the way a company is evaluated, whether it's a million-dollar company or a trillion-dollar company, is that, that the value essentially comes from 
cash flows coming in in the future. I mean, that's, that's how you value a company. Where are those cash flows coming? Ultimately, they're coming from consumers. They're coming from people spending money and, and people have to have money to spend. So think of the economy as being, you know, you know, kind of a virtuous cycle where you cycle money from consumers to businesses and then back to consumers. And then it's kind of a self-fulfilling, expanding, growing cycle over time. Um, the problem is that if the jobs go away, then that cycle is threatened because that's the mechanism that's getting income back from producers to consumers so that the whole thing conti continues to be sustainable. So, you know, we solve that problem and yeah, of course you're going to have trillion dollar companies. And so that's the scenario if, if everything you say comes to pass. Take the opposite for just a minute. Say that uh, 15 years goes by, unemployment's five and a quarter percent, and you know there's been some churn of the jobs, and and nothing really, nothing, you know, there's no kind of phase shift or you know paradigm shift or anything like that. What would that mean? Like, what does that mean long term for humanity? Um, do we just kind of go on in the the way we are ad infinitum? Are there other terminal are there other things, other factors that uh, could really upset the apple cart? Well, you know, again, my, my argument would be that if that happens and 15 years from now, things basically look the way they do now, then it, it means that, you know, people like me got the timing wrong. That, right. that you know, this isn't really going to happen within 15 years. Maybe it's going to be 50 years or 100 years. Um, but I still think it's kind of inevitable. Um, the other thing, though, you know, be careful when you say 15 years from now, the unemployment rate is going to be 5%. One thing to be really careful about is that you're measuring everything carefully because, you know, of course, the unemployment rate right now doesn't catch a lot of people that are dropping out of the workforce. And um, in fact, it doesn't drop, it doesn't ca capture anyone that drops out of the workforce. And, and we do have a declining labor force participation rate. So, um, you know, but, it's but, possible for a lot of people to be left behind and be disenfranchised and still not be captured in that, that headline unemployment rate. But a declining labor participation rate isn't necessarily people who can't find work, right? I mean, like, if enough people just make a lot of money and just, well, I mean, you've yeah, got, the, you've got the baby boomers retiring and they're three, I mean, I, I didn't, I, is it your impression that the numbers we're seeing in labor participation are indicative of people getting discouraged and dropping out of the job. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, there, there are a number of things going on there. Obviously, as you say, part of it is the, the, the demographic shift. And there are two things happening there. One is that people are retiring, certainly. That's part of it. Um, the other thing is that people are staying in, in school longer. So, so younger people are less in the workforce than they might have been decades ago because they, they've got to you know, stay in school longer in order to you know, have access to a job. So the, that's certainly having an impact, um, but that doesn't explain it totally by any means. In fact, if you look at the labor force participation, participation rate for what we call prime age workers, and that would be people that are maybe between 30 and 50. In other words, you know, too, too old to be in school generally and too young to retire. That's also declining, especially for men. So Yes, there is definitely an impact from people being, you know, leaving the workforce for whatever reason, very often being, being discouraged. Um, we've also seen a, a spike in um, applications for the Social Security Disability Program, right, which is 
you know, what you're supposed to get if you become disabled. Um, and there really has not, there's no evidence that people are getting injured on the job at some extraordinary new rate. So I think many people think that people are using that as kind of a last resort basic income program. You know, they're in many cases saying maybe they have a back injury that's hard to verify and they're getting onto that because they really just don't have any other alternatives. So there, there definitely is something going on there with that, that falling labor force participation rate. And, and final question, what, what gives you the most hope that will, whatever uh, trials await us in the future, or do you have hope uh, that we're going to get through them and go on to, to bigger and better things as a, as a species? Well, certainly the fact that we've always got through things in the past um, is, is, is some reason to be confident. I mean, I, you, you know, we, we've faced enormous challenges of all kinds, including, you know, global wars and, and plagues and, uh, uh, financial crises in the past, and we made it through it. I think we can make it through this time. It, it doesn't mean it will be easy. It really is easy. I mean, I, there aren't many cases in history you can point to where we just smoothly said, hey, look, there's this problem coming at us. You know, let's figure out what to do and adapt to it. That, that rarely is the way it works. I mean, you know, generally the way it works is you get into a crisis and eventually you end up solving the problem. And I suspect that that's the way it will go this time. Um, but, you know, specifically, there are positive things that I see. There are lots of important experiments, for example, with basic income going on around the world. Um, even, even here in Silicon Valley, you know, Y Combinator is doing something um, with, with an experiment with basic income that you may have heard about. Um, so I think that's tremendously positive. That's what we should be doing right now. We should be gathering information about these solutions and how exactly they're going to work so that we have the data that we're going to need to maybe craft a, a much broader base program at some point in the future. So that's all positive. You know, people are beginning to think seriously about these issues. And so I, I think that there is reason to be optimistic. Okay. And a real last question. If people want uh, more of your thinking, uh, do you have a website you suggest to go to? Um, the, the best place to go is my Twitter feed, which is mfordfuture. Um, and I also have a, a a blog and, and a website, which is the same, mfordfuture.com. And are you working on anything new? Uh, I am um, not working right now on a new book, but I go around doing a lot of speaking engagements um, on, on this. Um, I'm, I'm on the board of directors of a startup company, which is actually doing something quite different. It's actually going to do atmospheric water generation. In other words, um, generating water directly from air. That's a company called Genesis Systems. And I'm really excited about that because it's a chance for me to get in, involved in something really tangible. You know, I think you've heard the quote from Peter Thiel that, you know, we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters. And I actually believe strongly in that. I think there are too many people in Silicon Valley working on, you know, social media and getting people to click on ads. So I'm really excited to get involved in a company that's doing something really tangible that's going to maybe be transformative if we can figure out how to directly generate water in very arid regions of the earth in the Middle East and in, in, in North Africa and so forth. That can wow. be transformative. I think by one estimate, if, uh, if everybody had access to clean water, half of the hospital beds would be emptied. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly, I mean, it's just an important problem just on a, human, on a human level and also in terms of security, in terms of the geopolitics of these regions. So 
I, I'm you know, really excited to be involved with it. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, and you have a good day. Okay. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.